Here's today's text from Revelation 5, 11 to 14, reading from the message translation or paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. I looked again. I heard a company of angels around the throne, the animals and the elders, 10,000 times 10,000 their number, thousand after thousand after thousand in full song. The slain lamb is worthy. Take the power, the wealth, the wisdom, the strength. Take the honor, the glory, the blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth, in underworld and sea join in, all voices in all places singing to the one on the throne, to the Lamb, the blessing, the honor, the glory, the strength for age after age after age. The four animals called out, oh yes, and the elders fell to their knees and worshipped. This is the word of God for us today. Grab a seat. Thank you so much. I want you to imagine this with me. In our city, can you picture it? Just picture our city. And in our city, I want you to picture a big and impressive building, a building with a tall ceiling, a sense of grandeur, a sense of awe from the architecture. There's lots of colorful glass everywhere. There's ornamentation everywhere. There's imagery everywhere. There's images and there's icons. Pilgrims come to this building and offerings are being offered. Exchanges are being made for feelings that are negative to turn to ones of joy and peace. There's a gospel that is embodied here in this building. It's being portrayed. It's being conveyed. There is a good news being declared. And at certain calendar moments of the year, various things are elevated out of the norm. Easter and Christmas are often the favorites. There's a soundtrack that quietly plays something to get us in the mood and in the vibe. There's a sense here in this building that there is something taking place in one's soul. This place is a cathedral, but I'm not talking about a church. I'm talking about a shopping mall. (laughs) As James K.A. Smith puts it, The shopping mall is our consumerist cathedral. It is a place of worship where we are giving worth to the idols that we find within. And equally, it is a cathedral that is training our loves. You know, the mall has an evangelism, doesn't it? It has a witness that it is portraying to a good life that you can have. Billboards and displays and windows promising you something better than you currently have now and at a bargain price. That's nice of them. The mall embodies a redemption pathway, a way to get to that good life that it is trumpeting about. You know, buy this cream for your skin. Buy this new suit to replace your drab old one. Sit in this massage chair. Maybe it'll help you experience a little bit of rest. The mall will even give you free parking while you go around the various stations of its cross and visit 
its priests and its pastors. Now, now all of that may seem a little bit over the top and a bit hyperbolic this morning, but I just want to make no mistake. Malls are an arena of worship. They have a liturgy. They shape our loves. They help us to live in a certain direction. They are the center of our consumerism as we give our offerings in exchange for its promise of the good and flourishing life that it holds up. And the mall is not alone. We could add a long list of buildings, a long list of places, a long list of institutions to the mall that do the same thing to us, all other kinds of spaces of worship. You know, we could add sports arenas filled with uh, crowds who are worshipping their heroes and the victorious achievements of a team. We could add the high-rise buildings downtown full of CEOs and their teams driven for record profit, looking for success. We could add university lecture theatres where the heralding of further development of Project Self under Self's own steam is taking place. You know, from pilgrims flocking to racetracks that are named the Temple of Speed to craft beer breweries that have a sandwich board out the front saying, welcome to the sanctuary of beer. I just want to point out, none of these in themselves are bad. I love a good sporting moment. I love a good craft beer tasting paddle. But what I'm trying to say today, what I'm trying to highlight at the core of this is a great truth. The truth is this. We live in a culture of great worship. The big issue is not whether we are good at worship or not. The big issue is what are we worshiping? Oh, we are great at worshiping. You, you are terrific at worshiping. The more important question is who or what is at the end point of our worship? If our worship was aimed at a throne, who, who, would be, who would be sitting on it? Who would we find at the end of it? And why does that even matter? Why is that a question to raise today in church together? Kyle Eidelman, in his really good book, Gods at War, subline, Defeating the Idols that Battle for Your Heart, Kyle Eidelman writes this, Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. It's the one great sin that all others come from. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. It's the one great sin that all others come from. Uh, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, he thickens the same idea up in one of his biblical um, worship uh, papers, where he says this, uh, according to Romans 1 to 3, he says, the fundamental problem with the human race is not sin, but idolatry. A failure of worship, which leads to, but is itself deeper than, the multiple failures of human living. Our worship is a crucial first piece in our fallen condition. It's at the heart of the story of the fall. It was not sin first. It was the issue of worship. Will we live to honor God and walk in his presence or will we choose something else for ourselves? See, what we worship, we love. And so when our worship is directed to the wrong things, sin is often the following result. Sin does not just happen in some vacuum. Sin 
has a warm-up act. And the warm-up act is idolatry. Now we get the word idolatry by putting two words together, the word for idol and the word for worship. It's the worship of an idol. Giving worth to an object or a person that is not God. Now I'm just going to make a really big assumption here today. I'm picking most of you, and I'm happy to be wrong, but most of you are probably not going to go home to a shrine in the corner of your living room where there is some ceramic ornaments and you've got some little incense burners and you've got a little routine of visiting that every day to pray to the gods to control your day. If you do do that, you and I have to have a little pastoral chat this week, all right? But what I'm guessing is, as I say the word idolatry, most of us are thinking, "Uh, Dan, this seems a little archaic. This seems like a thing that's probably not quite relevant to today. So an assumption I'm not going to make today is this. I suspect some of us are probably even rolling our eyes at this comment today. The idea of idolatry. Oh, Dan, that's so unsophisticated. Oh, Dan, that happens in other countries, not ours. Oh, Dan, that happens in other cultures, but not mine. Well, you might be feeling a little bit above the idolatry chat today as I start this talk. But make, make no mistake, make no mistake, we do live in a culture that is worshipping idols. And idolatry is dangerous. Our idols have just changed. They look different. What we idolize is what we value. What we value gets our attention. And what we give our attention, we live like. So we live surrounded at the moment by cultural idols every day, images, ideals, icons that ask, will you worship me? Will you value me above all else? And though they are very different to the world of the ancient Israelites or to another culture somewhere else in the world, these idols are capable of the same power that they have always had. Idols distract us, they damage us, they deform us. But God is not in the business of deformation. Instead, he is in the work of transformation and reformation. God is not in the work of distraction. He is in the work of loving focus and attention and presence. God is not writing stories of further damage. Instead, he is writing stories of redemption and of freedom. You know, when God took his people out of the idol-filled world of Egypt and he set them into a journey to rehumanize them, taking them to the promised land, He taught them that they were to not be slaves anymore, that being a slave was not the way to get things done the way he had for them. They were to become people of freedom. They were not to carry on being deformed and to continue the deforming story forward. They were to live a new story of renewal, being lovingly reformed by God. And it's in that work, and it's in that moment, that God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, And he gave him the Ten Commandments, this law that was to help to rehumanize his people. They had only known the destruction of the world of slavery as their story. They needed to know that they were not to continue that story, but to start a new one. And so begins the Ten Commandments. Here they are. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. That's really important just to stop there for a second. God has already done something impressive and he's reminding them, I rescued you. I'm that God. You you were there. You saw it. I'm the one who did that. 
And so then off he goes with these commandments. Number one, you must not have any other God but me. Number two, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Here in the first two commandments of the next 10, what is the subject matter? The subject matter is worship. Why? Because a truth has existed for a very, very, very long time. Why is this the first piece? Because we become what we worship. We become what we worship. Sin has a warm-up act. The warm-up act is idolatry. Misdirected worship. Worship going where it should not go. And according to the Ten Commandments here, all of life will rise and fall on whether we get that right or if we get that wrong. The rest of the commandments hinge on these first two. The rest of the commandments hinge on coming into this perspective you will live a life of love for many generations if you can take this seriously, says God. If you can't, the destruction will be severe. It will be real and it will be felt. Welcome to church this morning. So how do we start realigning our worship to the right place? How do we, how do, we do a good job as we think about being people of worship. Well, let's start by just loading up the word really well. The English word for worship comes from worth-ship, like a terrible lisp, worth-ship. The English word worship is from worth-ship, which means we worship that which has the highest worth, that which we value the most. To say something is worth worshiping is to say it is of great, of supreme value. Which means to worship well, we actually need to know why something is valuable and why something is worthy. Um, I'm about to use an analogy, and sometimes as a pastor or a speaker, use an analogy, and um, you're just not quite owning it yourself. Um, yeah, I'm not owning this one fully because it's about Antiques Roadshow. Um, not quite my kind of favorite show. Uh, so there's a little part of me today that's sort of rolling my own eyes at this analogy, but I think it is a very good one to use. So have you seen any, any fans of Antique Roadshow in the house? You're not going to put your hand up after that warm-up, are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, a few hands going up. So Antique Roadshow. It's the show where there's this there's this team of um, various uh, antique dealers who know the value of things really, really well and art historians and all kinds of things. They set up in various places and people come to the, um, to the day and they bring their art or their antiques or the random thing that's been sitting on the shelf at their house. They bring it and the, the, one of the professionals will sit down with them and will look at it and will explain to them what the item is and they'll tell them what it's worth. And people can arrive with these old, dusty, 
vases or some tired painting that's been handed down through the family, um, only to be told that it was made by a great potter or it was painted by an amazing painter and it's worth thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. But if you don't know that, it's just forever some old vase. It's just some old painting. And often in the show, there's these moments when people's jaws like hit the floor. This guy here had this vase, this, um, this one here with the mushrooms on it. He brought it in and he's having some sort of existential crisis as, as he processes the numbers that have just been told to him. As he tries to comprehend that this toadstool vase is worth what it is worth and it's just been sitting on some bookshelf gathering dust and it's worth more than all his possessions put together. Why this jaw-dropping moment? Well, it's dawning on him what this thing is worth and how he was treating it beforehand. What was the missing piece? Why suddenly this moment? Well, the reason is, is because he needed the value revealed to him. And in revealing it to him, he has a revelation. He needed a revelation of the value. The revelation places it from this junk into an extremely worthy pile. At the revelation of it being worth so much, he moves it from one category to the other. And he responds accordingly, as you saw. Jaw hits the floor, lost for words, can't believe what he's seeing. Why? Because revelation leads to a response. Revelation leads to a response. Back to Tom Wright. He says this. When we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. I've done this for a few weeks now. I'm going to do it again this week. I'm going to give you two minutes to turn to the person next to you with that quote. And I just want you just to, just to say to each other, here's what I'm noticing. Ooh, that's a big one or whatever. Just what are you noticing right now? Time out from Dan for two minutes. Turn to the person next to you. Discuss this little quote. Go for it. All right. All right. Good chats. Thanks for doing that. Um, if I'd been sitting in the little group with you and having a chat, I would have, I would have thought about this. Uh, this week we saw the Oscar awards, didn't we? The Oscars happened this week. Yeah, they did. They did, Donald. You're welcome. I'll just give you a little bit of cultural sav- savviness here. And, yeah. and just imagine, imagine if no accolade was given to someone who deserved to be honored in their field. You know, imagine if after seeing a band play, they just rock out and play this epic song and then it's just silent afterwards. You know, imagine if there was just no giving of appreciation to people 
who deserve it for what they've done, for the giving of something that's to be celebrated and honored. You know, we applaud and we celebrate when we are fully convinced that we've just seen something worth our appreciation, don't we? We we give awards and we give titles, we give accolades to those whose efforts deserve mention and deserve honor. And at the crux of all of this is that we have had a revelation from them, a piece of music that was outstanding and their talent that was worth it, the hours of practice that they must have put in, the craft that they've shown us, the discipline that they've put on display, the hard work they've put in, and we go, that's worth something. We've had a revelation, and so we respond. Maybe we respond because that thing was so beautiful. It was just beauty in itself. Maybe it's not about the band at all. Maybe it's about the fact that that music took you somewhere. It just took you to another place, and it's beauty, a sort of transcendent way. And so we give affection and say thank you with applause and all those sorts of things. These are moments when a person or a moment is worthy of a response. And in the scriptures, we see this often. I just grabbed a little tiny glimpse here of a few things. Psalm 98 verse 1. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has done wonderful deeds, says the psalmist. Respond. Respond with a new song. Our worship team lent us into that today. Hey, we're going to lean in and just for a little bit, just you find your own words, people. Find what's in your heart. What do you want to say to him? Now, I know those moments are always a little bit awkward for some of us. I know we're like, oh, I don't know what to sing here. I'm, singing's not my thing. I know all those things go through some people's minds. But the point is, is this point from Psalm 98 verse 1 here. We we are trying to lean in and and give God a response that is worthy of the things we've seen him do in our lives. Or Psalm 103 verse 2. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. See, again, it's always walking hand in hand. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is this response to something that is happening. Or in John 4 verse 23. Where Jesus says, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in this way. He's talking about spirit and truth. And it says that the Father is looking for those who are going to respond to him in this way. In Romans 12 verse 1, there's this moment of a so therefore. That's used so often in Paul's writings. He kind of gets to a certain point in his letter and he goes, so therefore. You know, everything I've just said to you, here's now how we're going to enact it. Here's what we're going to do with it. And so he does this in chapter 12, verse 1. So therefore, take your lives and present them as a living sacrifice to God. So because of everything I've just told you about, this beautiful gospel, the wonders of what God's doing in our world, give yourself to him and his story. Or in 1 John 4, 19, I love this. And we must always remember this. This is in our worship confession that we said at the start of today as well. We love each other because he loved us first. He has already shown us love. He's already poured out his love. He's already embodied love to us. And we just respond with lives of love as a result. And in today's text, today's text is a terrific example of revelation and response. In today's text, we have this picture of of John's revelation 
as John is seeing the things going on in the, in the future age of heaven, and, and as he sees this, he sees this display of worship, this stunning display. And I want you to notice a couple of things that are going on here in today's reading, in today's text. Firstly, notice the response that's in the text. The response, there is singing, there's exclaiming, there's praise, there's kneeling, there's prostrating themselves. And it starts with those in the scene, and then it spreads out to a wider choir. It starts with just those at the top paragraph there, but in the middle paragraph, every creature in heaven and earth, in underworld and sea, join in all voices in all places singing. What is John trying to convey here? This is the loudest sound you'll probably ever hear. That's what he's trying to convey. Just think for a moment, just try and think. If all the world was about to make one noise at one, at one moment, what would that sound like? That's what John is trying to get you to see right here. All of creation is responding to Jesus. And we just mean to go like this. That would be incredibly loud. That is how to unpack this scripture. That is a good interpretation of the scripture. That would be full on. Which is exactly the point. Because it's not for no reason. It is because of the worth of what Jesus has done. It is to weigh it up like scales. Remember those old scales where you have two weights on each end and you, they sort of tip like this? So if all of that extreme noise is on one side, don't you naturally want to ask, so is all of that worth it? And so what John is trying to do here is he's trying to show you this. The weight on the other side of the scale, the work Jesus has done, the lamb who is on the throne and what he has done for mankind it is worth every single decibel. It's worth every single decibel. You see, it's this picture that's meant to get us sort of balancing this up. It's like this weight to make us go, wow, a bit like the Tom Wright quote. If I can't make that noise, I don't know if I've seen it yet. If I can't join in the choir like that, then maybe I'm missing something. And I'm not here to sort of put that on your shoulders as a weight and saying, you know, that's, that's rubbish of you. I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to say we're invited into a journey to see more of Jesus and to see more of his work and what he's doing in the world. We're invited to see what this choir is singing so passionately about and to go, I wonder why, and to be swept up to join in. You see, the key word here in this grand image, the reason I chose this text for our series and the reason I chose this text for today is that key word there on the fourth line. The slain lamb is, say it with me, worthy. worthy. It weighs up. He's worth the noise. He's worth all the attention. He is the pearl of great price that all of creation is able to pay the price to be able to give his presence to. It brings me now to the uh, series here, Worthy. That's why we titled it Worthy. We wanted to do a series for Easter. We wanted to talk about worship. 
I was like, what is that series going to be about? Well, that scripture there, it makes no sense if Easter didn't happen. It only makes sense because of the Easter story, because Jesus became this lion-like lamb seated upon the throne. And so we're going to track for a couple of weeks towards that story. Easter is the moment of us realizing that God came not just to um, stay the incarnate God who was going to become like Roman power and Caesar and sit on a throne and do everything by military might. No, he became the God who entered into suffering as the suffering servant. He became this lion-like lamb who was victorious in his suffering. And so in Revelation, there's this picture that says, oh, this is who he's become. This is who he is. And it's because of the Easter event. So we're going to track our way towards that. So in a couple of weeks' time, when it's Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at the fact that this is the lion-like lamb who is worthy of our worship. But before we get there, just for these next couple of weeks, we're going to take a couple of steps together. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about our lives lived as a response of worship. So we're going to dig deeper into Romans 12. And then the week after that, on April the 2nd, on Palm Sunday, We're going to talk about our songs as a response. We're going to talk about this thing of singing together and what it is we do together as a church when we come together to sing. We're going to take a little journey here to talk about God is worthy of this. We're convinced of it. And so we're going on the journey. And so that's what I want to invite you to. That's our series for these next couple of weeks. To close, as we close, I want to just offer one last word. As we go forward from here in this little series, that the heart of the series here is that we truly consider that worship is just not some option for some people, the people who seem to like it or get a kick out of it, but worship is the core activity of all of our lives. Now, that may sound rather large to say that, you know, that may sound rather assumptive, but as we're going to uncover over the next couple of weeks... This is always meant to have been the bar that the Christian church was to put their lives against. Lives of worship. Lives lived as witnesses to the worthiness of Jesus and what he has done as the lion-like lamb. Worship is the greatest priority of our gathering together. When we come together and we're crafting this moment every week, we are crafting a worship gathering. All week long, this is what we're planning for and and, and putting effort into as staff members. This moment when we come together as the saints for worship to happen. The most important words that we say every week are the ones we say that about 20% of you are in the room for at the very start when we do our worship confession. We say a worship confession together And the last couple of words are the most important words, the dearest to our hearts as a gathered people. Come, let us worship God. Come, let us worship God. It's this confession that we say together to remind ourselves that's why we are here. That's what we've arrived for. That's what we've walked into the room for. Now, there's a bunch of other reasons. I get that. And they're good reasons too. We're allowed to be here to enjoy the other components of gathering together. But what I'm trying to say today is all of it stems from that first priority to be people who have come to worship God. Worship is not some sideshow. Worship is not just for those people who seem to like to sing. It is the main event that we are all to be swept up into together. 
We are to join the great choir that has been responding to, G- to Jesus for 2,000 years now and will respond to him for all of time. Because he, after all, is worthy. It stacks up. He is worthy of that great response. It's not hyperbole. It is a, way, it is a weight that is right. And so... As we begin this series, my benediction to you today is this. May your life be swept up into the great response to the one who is worthy. Can the church say with me, amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a stunning Sunday afternoon of Sabbath. Rest hard, delight hard, praise hard, enjoy yourself for next week. We will continue.